Hey, what up? It's Mark Carter. I'm the pastor of Fierce Church. Welcome to our podcast. I'm so pumped that you're able to join us today. I hope this encourages you, inspires you, strengthens you, gives you hope to keep pressing on. And it's my prayer that this sermon gives you a more expansive view of God's love for you. Enjoy the message. Well, my name is Brandon. Um, I'm, I'm the worship pastor here, and I'm super excited to, to get to share God's word with you today. I'm a little bit nervous. Uh, I do speak from stage sometimes, but it's usually in like two-minute increments, and then we sing another song. So I'm a little concerned about my ability to sustain a single train of thought for more than 10 minutes. I am not known for that, so if at any point I break into song, uh, just go with it. Let's just have fun with it this morning. And if you want to break into song, you're welcome to do that as well. I would love that. Uh, So if you were here last week, we had a guest preacher, Justin came from Heritage Church in Round Lake. And I just want to pause and uh, thank the Lord together for for how awesome that was. I want to point out specifically what happened last week. Uh, Justin just heard that Pastor Carter's on sabbatical over the summer, and he wanted, Justin just wanted to come and bless us with a sermon. Sometimes guest, guest preachers will get paid to come and, you know, speak at a church, and he didn't get paid anything. He just got the satisfaction of getting to bless us. Um, he's the lead guy at Heritage, which means he had to get a guest preacher to cover for him so he could come and be our guest preacher, and that's just really cool. And I want to point out specifically that over this summer, the Lord has provided for you spiritual nourishment in creative ways, and I think that's really cool. While Pastor Carter's on sabbatical, it's really cool that the Lord is just meeting our needs every single week. Isn't that awesome? Praise the Lord. So um, Justin preached last week about the foolish and the wise builders, um, and he, you know, we zeroed in on the, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus has just shared tons of wisdom about heaven and about the Lord and about life, the Sermon on the Mount. And he ends the Sermon on the Mount with this illustration of a builder, a foolish builder and a wise builder. And he says that if, if you listen to the words that I've said and if you do the things that I'm telling you to do today in this sermon, um, you'll be like the wise builder who built his house on the solid foundation. And if you listen to all my words and you don't do what I'm saying, you'll be like the foolish builder who built his house on the sand. And the storms of life come and they test the work of both the builders and the foolish builder's work collapses and the strong builder's work endures and sustains. And today I want to zero in on that kind of foreboding, ominous promise that Jesus just made. I don't want to skim past that because he promised that the storms of life will come. 100% of the builders in that story had their work tested. Two out of two builders, the, the, the entire spectrum, the foolish and the wise, and that's all of us today. So I want to zero in on that, and I, I want to ask the question today, how do we weather our storms well? Because we're going to get storms, according to Scripture, right? According to Jesus, we're going to get storms. So how do we weather those storms well? I read verses like James 1-2. It says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I read 1 Peter 1.6. It says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And I'm literally made of questions. Because, <laughs> first of all, how? How am I supposed to consider it pure joy and greatly rejoice? And second of all, no. I, <laughs> no, thank you. I'm sorry, but no, I don't understand. I've been in trials before. And I distinctly remember not being overcome with the urge to burst into song. It's not a pleasant experience. So how on earth are we supposed to do that? I feel like if I had James and Peter, I could pull them aside and say, explain yourself, sir. I need more data. I need more information. And 
And we actually, we do get more information. If we keep reading, we keep digging. The next verse in both of those passages, uh, so we just read James 1, 2. It says, consider your pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. James 1, 3 says, because you know that the testing of your faith, somebody say faith. faith, faith, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And again, the next the next verse in the passage from First Peter, we read First Peter 1, 6, it says, in all this you greatly rejoice, so now for a little while you've had to face, suffer grief in, in all kinds of trials. First Peter 1, 7 says that these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your, say it with me, faith produces oh, your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So the key to weathering our storms well is this word faith, right? So we need a deeper understanding today of what faith is. So if we, according to George Michael, faith is something that we got to have. We got to have faith, right? Great, great pop song. Maybe not super helpful when you're, when you're enduring storms and trials. So uh, thanks, George, but maybe we need a little more to go off of. So if we were to take a survey of the world and just ask people on the street, what is 2021, tell me what faith is. We'd get a very colorful, creative uh, explanation. Probably something uh, very sterilized and safe, not to offend anybody. You'd probably hear stuff like uh, positive thinking and good vibes. Good vibes. Sending, sending good vibes. Anybody ever been in a trial and been sent good vibes? I'm guessing it didn't help a ton. Um, and I'm, I'm concerned because even in, in our Christian culture, we seem to have a squishy understanding of what faith is. We have kind of a, a confused and amorphous understanding sometimes of what faith is. I've been in Christian bookstores and gift shops, and I've seen bumper stickers that say stuff like, faith is hope set on fire. And that is basic nonsense. <laughs> that means nothing. Congratulations, you've said nothing. You've said worse than nothing. You should have just said nothing. because. So if, if, for instance, if you were going through a trial and you're going through something really hard and you reach out to a pastor to come over and, and give you some counseling and I come to your house and I sit on the couch with you and we're, we're in it together, we're grieving, I'm hurting with you, I'm hearing you out, and then I put my arm around you and I say, hey, hey, chin up, okay? Because faith, faith is hope set on fire. I read that on the back of a cereal box once, but I think it applies right now. <laughs> You would kick me out of your house, and you absolutely should, because that's a meaningless statement. That, those poetic platitudes about faith are the very first thing to burn up in the fire, aren't they? They just blow away with the storm, don't they? We need something solid. We need something sturdy and stable that we can lean on with our full weight. We need a, an understanding of faith that goes a lot deeper than that, don't we? So let's turn to Scripture. We're going to look at a single word in the Greek language that's used 244 times in the New Testament. And the word is pistis. And we're going we're gonna to look at the Strong's Concordance definition of the word pistis so that we understand all 244 of those times that that word appears, faith, 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 in the New Testament. We're going to understand this deeper meaning, this deeper definition of what is being said in that instance. Both of those verses that we just read are pistis, faith. So what, what does that mean? So Pistis is the conviction that God exists and is the creator and ruler of all things, the provider and bestower of eternal salvation through Christ. Pistis is a strong and welcome conviction or belief that Jesus is the Messiah through whom we obtain eternal salvation in the kingdom of God. So that is stable. That is sturdy. You can lean on that, right? 
It is a little bit wordy, and so I'd like to condense it. I, I've, I've fashioned a condensed version of that um, that I would like to submit to you today, a working definition. It's not an exhaustive definition of everything you could ever say about faith, but just for our purposes today, I think it'll be helpful. And we're going to use faith says language for our definition. It's faith says God is God. Faith says God is good. And faith says God is good to me. Okay, so let's break that down. What do we mean by that? God is God. We're taking from the concordance definition, the the line read, he is the creator and ruler of all things. God is God. He's the creator and ruler of all things. He's a thousand percent in charge. He gets to call the shots. He is sovereign over everything. He made everything and he gets to rule over everything. So we let God be God. And honestly, I think this is where a lot of us get stuck right away. That that first phrase in our statement, we get stuck on that one because we have a hard time sometimes, don't we, letting God be God? Like when when things are fine, good. Yeah, like God is God then. You, You accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior and things were good for a while and you're heavy on the Savior part and maybe a little lighter on the Lord part. And then when things get hard, it's like when the pain is applied, you're reaching for the wheel and you're going to take it back from the Lord and I'm going to drive a little bit and I've got to look out for number one. I've got to look out for me. God's not coming through. I've got to, I've got to take care of myself. I've got to take matters into my own hands and I'm going to steer for a while. And so if I'm describing you, um, I think sometimes we have less of a faith crisis and more of a lordship issue when the pain is applied. Okay, so... Right there, that might be your sermon for today. You might need to ask the Lord to help you in that. You might need to stop right, right here and just repent for times where you've done that, where you've yanked the wheel back from the Lord and said, yeah, you drove for a little while, now I'm taking back over. You need to repent for that thing, and you need to ask Jesus' help to put that thing to death because he'll help you do that. Okay, so God is God. The next thing we said was God is good, and we take that from the, the Strong's Concordance definition of pistis when it said he is the bestower of eternal salvation. That's good. And then we're going to say God is good more specifically, more personally, to me. God is good to me. And we take that where the definition said, through whom we obtain eternal salvation. So it's not this distant theological thought. It's not this cold, distant, stale, like, he's generally a benevolent good God. No, he... He loves you personally. He died on the cross for you. Jesus Christ did all the heavy lifting for you. He did all the work. It was finished at the cross for your righteousness and salvation. All you have to do is this, this pistis thing, this God is God, God is good, and God is good to me. Does that sound good? Okay, so we have a functional definition of what faith is. We're going to say faith says God is God, and God is good, and God is good to me. But what do we do with it, right? How do we use it? Is it a tool? Is it a weapon? Is it like an anchor, like we need to know how we're going to, how's that going to help us now weather through our storms well so that we can consider it pure joy, so that we can rejoice in all kinds of trials. So the first thing that we're going to do, we're going to do three things because I heard that the most spiritual number of points in a sermon is three. So again, you could do more with faith, but I just chose three for today and I think it's going to be helpful for us. Uh, The first thing we're going to do is because God is God and God is good and God is good to me, I will take up the shield. I will take up the shield. So Ephesians says, in addition to all this, and all of this, this is from the armor of God. So if I, my, your homework today is to go read Ephesians 6. Okay, so read the entire thing. We're not going to read it all today. We're just going to pull out the faith part. 
But in addition to all of this, he's referencing putting on the full armor of God. He's saying the belt of truth around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness, the readiness of the gospel of peace, and the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. All of them. This Shield of faith is completely impervious. It is, is completely invincible. It's capable of extinguishing all of the attacks of the enemy. You've got a tool that can protect you from all of the attacks of the enemy. Is that awesome? That's awesome. I want you to picture Captain America. Okay, so he's got, he's got a shield. And Ultron can blast fire energy out of his face. And Cap's like, bam, shielded. I'm good. It's vibranium, bro. You're embarrassing yourself. I could do this all day. And he says that, doesn't he? He says, I could do this all day. We could do this all day. So you've got this shield. That's your shield of faith. It's completely invincible. It's vibranium, bro. Like it's completely invincible, capable of extinguishing all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. But you have to take up the shield of faith. You have to take it with you. How many know that a shield doesn't do a whole lot of good if you leave it at home? Right? So imagine you're on a battlefield now. It's like an old-timey battlefield, and you're there, and you're ready for the battle a couple minutes early, and you've got your armor on, and your sword, and your shield, and your helmet, and whatever else. And then your buddy shows up, and he's missing his shield. And you're like, buddy, where's your shield? And your buddy has kind of a funny voice, and he goes, oh, I, I, I left it at home. I, you know, it's such a nice shield. I, I didn't want it to get scratched. It's so, it's so pretty looking. It's my Sunday shield. I take it to church on Sunday, and I hold it up, and we sing the songs, and uh, I'm like, it's my shield of faith. It's nice, right? Shiny, and then I take it home, and I put it in its display case, and I just look at it, and I'm like, I'm so glad I got this shield. It's so nice and shiny, and you're like, buddy, aren't you worried you're going to get shot? Oh, yeah, I get shot all the time. I've got arrows sticking out of me right now. And it's when I get hit with an arrow that I'm like, I'm so glad I left my shield in its display case. Otherwise, it might get scratched. So your buddy is an idiot because he's the, he's the guy that you say, hey, when the, when the action kicks off and the battle starts, I think we've got this area covered. Why don't you go all the way over there and fight over there? Because you seem to lack a basic understanding of how shields work. You have to have it with you for it to work, right? You have to take up the shield of faith, but you have to take up the shield of faith, don't you? It said, take up the shield of faith. And guys, shields are heavy. Shields are heavy. If you're going to do this all day long and be ready when it's time, when the enemy comes to attack you, he's not going to like announce his presence. He's going to surprise you with an attack. So you got to be quick. So you got to practice. You got to build this muscle. Church, you need a strong shield arm. You need in and out of season, whether you perceive a threat or not, whether there's danger, you need to be constantly saying, God is God. God is good. God is good to me. You're getting your reps in. God is God. God is good. God is good to me. Whether I perceive a threat or not, God is God. God is good. And God is good to me all day long, every day. Be reminding yourself, taking up that shield of faith, just reminding yourself that God is God and God is good and God is good to you. Amen? Amen. Could we say, could we make two observations about flaming arrows before we move on to the next point? So two things about flaming arrows. First, they are coordinated. Very, it's a coordinated, strategic, targeted attack. Okay, and what I mean, have you ever tried to shoot somebody with a flaming arrow? It's actually not very easy in my experience. I'm just joking. I never shot anybody with a flaming arrow. Just seeing if you guys are still awake. I have shot my friends, though, with 
Roman candles before. And relax, they, had Roman, they were shooting Roman candles at me too, so it was a game. We called it a Roman candle fight. It's like a game, but it doesn't have any points or scores or winners, but you could say it definitely has losers. And I think the, strat- I think the, the strategy is pretty similar. I think my credits will transfer in my Roman candle fight experience. Um, there's a lot of variables to coordinate when you're trying to hit somebody with a Roman candle. So you've got to judge the distance. That's the obvious one. You have to arc your shot. But then you have to factor in the wind because you're doing this outside. Otherwise, it would be dangerous. So you've got to factor in the wind. And then the hardest variable to account for is that you're running at full speed and they're running at full speed because nobody's trying to get hit with a fireball. So, so then you've got to mark the trajectory and you've got to kind of imagine the trajectory. So if they're running and I've got to fire my shot at just the right time so that they're in just the right place at just the right time to land a hit. So that's how you have a Roman candle fight. Welcome to Fierce Church. Mark will be back in August. I just feel like that was a question maybe that you're... It was going to be asked. So I have a point, though, and the point is, in your Roman candle fighting, it's very similar to, I I would imagine, the principles of hitting somebody with a flaming arrow. It's got to be very coordinated and very targeted. And your enemy, the devil, is very strategic, and he's not going to just waste a flaming arrow in broad daylight. He's not going to announce, I'm going to shoot it now. Okay, let me find my shield. He's going to wait until you're in just the right place. At just the right time, he's going to shoot to land a hit. He's going to wait until you're low. He's going to wait until you're already discouraged. He's going to wait until you're hungry or tired or isolated, right? He's going to wait until you're in your feelings and you're riddled with guilt over something that you did. And he just won't let you forget about it, how worthless you are that you did that. He's going to wait until you're gripped with anxiety and fear about the future. Your finances are a wreck. You're never going to make it, right? He's going to, he's going to, He's going to wait, and he's going to strategize and coordinate that shot. And the second observation that I want to make about flaming arrows is that they're on fire. And that might seem obvious, but the fire, I, I believe, is significant. It represents um, fire consumes things, right? A fire can consume a building in minutes. Fire brings devastation to everything it touches. And the fire of the flaming arrows of the evil one is designed to consume the work of God in your life and through and around your life. So it's different than a normal hit. It's different than like random shrapnel hit you on the battlefield. Like life is just hard and that's, that's just life being hard. But a flaming arrow is different because it hits you and it's just a one-dimensional hit at first. It just cuts. But then the fire starts to spread and, and burn and consume other things in your life. So it's, and it's kind of irrational, isn't it, if you've ever experienced this? It's kind of irrational. It's like one bad thing happened, but all of a sudden, before you know it, you're really discouraged about that thing. But then you're like... That's somehow even, even irrationally, it's connected to this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing. And you look around and 10 things are on fire. And you're like, what's the use? Like, now I'm ready to just quit. I'm devastated. I'm past just like discouraged. I'm in despair. Like, there's no hope at all. I quit. I'm done. I'm done. I'm just going to lie down on the battlefield right here and die because it's useless. Right? And if you were to explain it to a friend, it's like, only one thing happened. But that's the, that's the significance of the, of the fire of the flaming arrow, I think. So can I, can I share personally with you one that happened to me recently? And, and it is. It's irrational. It's totally irrational, but it, but it was significant. It's from my daughter, and she, it was not an attack from her. It was an innocent comment that she made, a question that she asked. 
Um, but it was kind of like a parent-dad guilt thing that, that ignited a bunch of other values and fears and stuff. So I'll just tell you that I was, I was picking up my kids from a, a play date from a friend's house. And it's like summertime, and I pull up, and it's a beautiful house, and they're in the backyard playing, and it's a beautiful backyard. And my daughter, like, glistening with summer, she runs up all out of breath, and she's like, Dad, Dad, can we get a house like this in the backyard someday? And I was like, I did, like, the lame pseudo-spiritual thing, like, yeah, pray for it. Like, just buy it in faith. In my head, I'm like, absolutely not. I know, I know, like, I know how much I make, and I know what property costs. There's absolutely no way. And that was the cut, okay? So that was just a one-dimensional hit, is I actually would love to have a larger space to live with a, a yard would be great. We have a, a family of six. I've got four kids, um, and that's a lot of kids. And we live in an apartment. That's four kids. That's one kid times four. <laughs> they don't tell you that. Like Jim, Jim Gaffigan says, Jim Gaffigan, a comedian, says, if you want to know what it's like to have four kids, just imagine you're drowning. And then someone hands you a baby. <laughs> it's not always like that, but it's always a, at least a little bit like that. It's always a baseline level of chaos. Um, to give you, like yesterday, we were at breakfast at Fred's Diner, and, and the phone rang at the restaurant, and my toddler jumped up onto the booth and shouted in the middle of the restaurant, I need to call the mayor! <laughs> he needed to call the mayor, I guess. He and the mayor, apparently they had plans to like, get into a garbage truck and drive around the city. I had no idea. But that's like, that was breakfast. <laughs> like, that was just... A baseline level of chaos throughout the day, all day long. There's a certain just baseline level of noise everywhere. And we live in an apartment, and it's a big apartment, and we love it. But any sized apartment with six humans is tight. So we're tripping over people all day and tripping over each other all day. So, And like I said, we love our apartment, but um, in terms of outdoor play, so my kids are at this like play date playing outside in the summer. In terms of outdoor play, they... We do have a parking lot that they can ride their bikes around in, but it's kind of like a warn me 10 seconds before you get hit by a car situation. Like, you got to be careful because it's a parking lot. And we do have a climbing tree, um, but it's kind of precariously on top of and next to this fence that's all rotten and like rusty nails are sticking out of it. So I've literally said the sentence, hey, if you fall out of the tree, fall toward the train tracks and away from the fence, that's, but not on the train tracks. On the rocks next to the train tracks is the safest place to fall. And it actually is. So it already, like, in me, when she, when she just... It was a totally innocent question, totally fair question. Dad, could we get a, a house like this in the backyard? I want that. And, and so that, like, that was the initial one-dimensional hit of disappointment. I wish we could. But the fire part of it that started to spread to other areas and, and burn and consume other areas and bring discouragement and devastation was... Um, it hit me. I did like in, in an instant. I did the, I ran the numbers. How much would I have to save? I'd have to save, for me to save every penny I have from now until I could afford a house with a yard like this, you will have grown up and moved out of the house. She's 11 now. And then, ugh, she's not a little girl anymore. Like that dad thing just exploded all in an instant. And then I started to like, okay, um, so finances. Like I made a choice. I, I got in, I chose, I'm in ministry and I, and I love my job, but I know like I don't have credentials to go get a different job to earn more money. Um, I don't have a degree. I, I've, I've got no real marketable skills. I've been doing ministry for 15 years and I, and I love it, but I, it's not exactly the kind of thing where you can just decide where to go to, to make more money. And, and then I like, I'm, I'm thinking somebody 
So I picked a lane that took me down a path that led me to a place of not being able to buy a house, and other people picked a lane that took them down a path that led them to where they can buy a house with a yard, and, and like, did I make the wrong choice? And then all of a sudden, I'm like rethinking, and it, it went on for a couple of days, and it just spread, like the fire spread for a couple of days to where I really was for a couple of days, like, what's the use? Like, just despair kind of set in. And I don't know if you've been there. I don't know if, if you've experienced anything like that. I want to tell you, if you have, take all of those wounds to the Lord, because he is faithful, and he'll heal those. And it might take some time. It took me several conversations with trusted friends. Set aside half a day. If everything in your life is on fire, set aside half a day to to deal with the Lord and bring it all to him and ask him to heal it and patch you up, because he totally can. But the other thing that I would encourage you to do is hold up your freaking shield, church, really, Because you have a shield. Every flaming arrow you've ever been hit by, you actually had the right tool to deal with. You just didn't maybe have it with you, or you didn't pick it up in time because you weren't practicing. Your shield arm wasn't strong because you haven't been in and out of season taking up the shield of faith like we're commanded to do. So take up the shield of faith. God is God. God is good, and God is good to me. Amen? All right, that was just point one. So point two, the thing... The next thing that we're going to do, because God is God and God is good and God is good to me, is we're going to practice stillness. We're going to practice stillness. So we're going to get out of the future, we're going to get out of the past, and we're going to sit right here in the present with the Lord and enjoy his goodness and his blessings and his favor. Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. God is God, right? From From our definition of faith, God, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God is good, right? He's so good that the nations and the whole earth will exalt him. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God is good to me, right? So we've got to practice this being still. Exodus 14, 14 says, The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Psalm 37 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. We've got to continually be improving at this discipline of getting still, of silencing the voice of the enemy and the voice of the critic and the voice of the accuser, of silencing the voice of the world and your own flesh and getting still with the Lord, remembering his goodness, remembering that he's God and he's good to you and and listening for his still quiet voice. And that's super hard to do in 2021, isn't it? Like, it's hard to shut everything down. There's so many inputs. There's so many distractions and so many things to be occupied with. But that doesn't absolve us from the responsibility of getting still, from the spiritual discipline of getting still. And I'm using my words carefully. I'm not saying, uh, those of you who are really good at that, just keep doing it. I'm saying everybody. Like, it says, be still. All of us need to practice being still. And you might say, I can't do that. I'm terrible at that. You have no idea what this is like. It's running all day long. It's chaos up here. And, And... me too, but, uh, but that doesn't absolve us from the responsibility to get still. How do, we, how do we get still? How do we practice this skill of stillness? Well, the first thing that we do is we engage with our thoughts. Honestly, I think a lot of times we're just on autopilot, and whatever flies into our brain, whatever the world puts in there, whatever the enemy puts in there, we don't have strict enough filters set for our thoughts And we don't necessarily grab our thoughts and engage with them actively. We don't pull it to the front and say, is this a good thought? We don't evaluate it. So that's the first thing we do. We engage. We we hold a thought up to the light and we evaluate. Is this virtuous? Is this edifying? Is this helpful? Is this accurate? Is this thought, does this agree 
with, with our faith statement? Does this thought say God is God and that God is good and that God is good to me? And if it doesn't, we correct it. We say, no, and instead I'm going to toss this and remind myself. We remind ourselves that God is God and God is good and God is good to us. And we practice it. We continually practice it. We're not good at it for a while. We're going to fail at it sometimes. We're going to fail at it a thousand times a day, but we're going to keep trying and fail and try and fail and try and fail and practice. That's why I'm saying practice the art of stillness. So you might say, I can't do that. Keep trying. I hear it. It's hard. I know it's hard. Keep trying. Keep reminding yourself of God's goodness. Keep slowing your thoughts down. Finding, finding a space to, to meditate and to get still. I don't want to be sensitive and understanding of the fact that ADHD um, and anxiety are real things. Absolutely. And that might put you at a disadvantage if you've got a diagnosis of a, of a chemical reality, like a clinical thing that makes it harder for you to do that. That's totally legit. That might put you at a disadvantage. That doesn't mean you don't have to still do it. Uh, you might need medication. Take medication. But don't only take medication as your strategy for stillness before the Lord. Okay, so if you need, it, that would be like if, if I have an iron deficiency and I need to take iron supplements, but I, I'm like, I'm only going to take iron supplements and eat nothing else all day. Well, no, you should take iron supplements, but then you should eat a balanced meal and drink enough water and get some rest, right? So, so take, if you, need, if you need medication to help you and assist you in your ability to grab your thoughts and bring them under stillness, do it, but also continue to practice, continue to engage with your thoughts and evaluate, is this even edifying? Is this even true? And engage and correct it if it's not. Can I give you some encouragement because I know it is hard. The same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. You do have the power to grab your thoughts and correct them because the power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, Romans 8.11. You have been given not a spirit of timidity and a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and a spirit of love and a sound mind or self-discipline according to 2 Timothy. And this this is my favorite one. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says that we demolish arguments and every single pretension that would dare set itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We say, we wrestle our thoughts to the ground and we say, no, in Jesus' name, you will submit to the idea. You will agree because God is God and God is good and God is good to me. And that's called faith, right? Amen. And listen, no one else is coming to do that for you. I can't do that for you. You are on the watch. Like it is on your watch, you are responsible for grabbing your thoughts and correcting them and and making them submit to Jesus Christ. Right? Good. So in that stillness, in that stillness, when we're reminding ourselves that God is God and God is good and God is good to me, we're able to look around and enjoy the blessings of God. And suddenly those four kids that I'm tripping on all the time are, I'm reminded, it is chaos, but that's even sometimes part of the fun is how chaotic it is. And they're awesome. They're beautiful. Every single one of them is amazing. And I've got an amazing wife. And I've got, I've got, I love my apartment. Like we've marked the heights on the walls and we love our home. And I love my job, guys. Like I did not make the wrong choice. That's crazy talk. I love what I do. I get to build the kingdom of God every day when I go to work and I get paid to do it. Oh my goodness. Like there's gratitude in our hearts when we're able to reorient our thinking by honestly find, we're aiming at stillness, but we're just correcting our thoughts with God is God and God is good and God is good to me. And the third thing that we're going to do, because God is God and God is good and God is good to me, I will worship and obey. Here we go. The worship pastor's telling us to worship. That's not why I did. That's, it's still the point that we should have. So what I, I, I don't necessarily mean sing songs. So I, we could say it another way. We should, 
because God is God and God is good and God is good to me, we will worship through obedience. So worship is not contained in the songs that we sing on Sunday. That's a great expression, but that's not like, check, you've worshiped necessarily. Um, what, we, uh, what worship is, what would be better, be, honestly, better worship than for you to sing on Sunday morning, a better expression of worship is for you to just obey the Lord. So obey the commands that you find in Scripture. Obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit. When he tells you, hey, hey, you should do this, do it. When he says, hey, you should stop doing this, stop. Obey. Like, that would be worship. And what I want to look at is an incident in Abraham's life for this, uh, this point. And honestly, we could take a look at all, every moment of Abraham's life would be a great lesson for faith and worship and obedience. But the specific point that I want to look at in Abraham's story is when the Lord tests him by asking him to uh, sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt offering, to kill his son Isaac. And if you're coming into that cold, if you've never heard that story before, you're not crazy. That's crazy. That sounds crazy. Uh, it can be jarring if you've never read that story to hear, wait, what? Before you get like freaked out and leave. Uh, God, so Abraham does obey. He does follow through with it. But it, like he raises the knife and at the very last second, God's like, wait, I was testing you. You passed. Don't, kill, don't harm Isaac. Here's a lamb. Sacrifice that, and they do that. So I just don't want you to get freaked out if you've never heard that story before. So, um, but it's still crazy. The story itself is still completely crazy. If you put yourself in Abraham's shoes, it's insane that God would ask him to sacrifice Isaac because Isaac is the son of promise. So, and, and in two ways, Isaac is the son of promise in two ways. First, in that God promised Isaac to Abraham and Sarah, and it was like a miraculous thing. Like they're uh, they're super old, 99 years old, and Sarah was 90 years old, and it is medically impossible. Like, babies aren't happening, and, it, and God stepped into that and promised, no, in, in this moment, you will have a baby, and it'll be Isaac. And Abraham dared to believe. He stepped in and, and accepted that promise and saw God deliver on the promise. So Isaac is the son of promise. Like, wait a minute, you just promised me that I would have this son Isaac. You gave me a son where it was like a miraculous thing, and now you're telling me to sacrifice him. He's the son of promise, but he's the son of promise in a second way that makes it even crazier. So God has made a covenant promise to Abraham that all of Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars, that God would bless the entire world through Abraham. All the way down, we see all the way, the lineage all the way down to Jesus. So like God's got this plan to bless Abraham with numerous as the star's descendants and bless the whole world through Abraham, and it's through Isaac. God's made it very painfully clear. I'm not going to do that through Ishmael. I'm going to do that through Isaac. Isaac is plan A, and there is no plan B. And like Abraham's on that page, and then all of a sudden God shows up and is like, and now kill him. And it, like, it, it is actually that crazy. So let's pick it up at Hebrews 11. And this is in the New Testament. This is called the Hall of Faith. Hebrews 11, your second assignment for homework is to go home and read Hebrews 11. Read Ephesians 6. Read Hebrews 11. This is the Hall of Faith where we're looking back on the stories of the Old Testament and we're highlighting different heroic faith moments uh, throughout history. And this is, this is like a retelling of that story of Abraham's. Okay, so it says, By faith, pistis... This uh, Greek word pistis. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. 
Abraham, who had embraced the promise, like against all odds, I, it's hard for me to believe, but I'm going to step out in faith and believe it, God, you're going to bless me with a son. He did that. Now he's about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Guys, for Abraham to obey would have been a terrible idea, minus faith. If you take faith out of the equation, if, if, you're, if you're not confident that God is God and God is good and God is good to me, it's, it's insane. But Abraham had faith, and that's all he had. All he had was faith. He didn't have a plan in his head. He had faith, and that's it. Let's look at Genesis 22.6. It says, Abraham took the wood for... So he, like, two verses earlier, he just got the command to go to this place. I'm going to show you, Abraham, and kill and offer your son to me as a sacrifice. And then here we are. It says, Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering. There's no argument from Abraham. He took the wood and the burnt, as for the burnt offering, and he placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. Is there any manlier image of faith? <laughs> like he grabbed the fire in one hand and the knife in the other hand, and they set out up the mountain. I love that. I, like, I kind of I imagine him shirtless. Like he just ripped it off, manly fire, knife, we're going up the mountain. So, um, and they head up the mountain, and they're on their way up the mountain, and Isaac does a little inventory. And he's like, so, Dad, I uh, notice uh, we got the wood for the sacrifice and the fire, so that's really good. Where's the sacrifice? And it's a fair question. What are we going to kill? He doesn't know about the, the plan yet. Abraham hasn't told him. And Abraham's response is dramatically prophetic. He said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And of course, in that story, he does that day for Abraham and Isaac to offer a lamb shows up. But more significantly, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering is a nod to Jesus, the lamb of God who was, who was offered as a sacrifice for you and I to be made right with God. So they head up the mountain, uh, they obey, God pa or Abraham passes the test, they, you know, he... he Binds up Isaac, puts him on the, on the wood, and like raises the knife. And at the very last second, God's like, wait, lamb. Okay, switch, kill the lamb, worship, obey. But then my favorite part of this whole story is the, on the way back down the mountain, Abraham uh, commemorates the move of God that just happened. He commemorates this place uh, kind of as a, as a remembrance of what God did. And it says in Genesis twenty two fourteen. so Abraham called that place... The Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. What, church, what is stopping you from obeying the Lord? What is stopping you from, from worshiping God? From letting God be God? What is stopping you from that? What is stopping you from agreeing that God is God and that God's going to be good to you again? Is it uh, maybe... You're fixated on things that you lack. Maybe you've got a long list of things that God needs to do, and you're like, I've been praying, and he's not showing up. Like, I, I need, I don't have the right strength, I don't have the right intelligence, I don't have the right finances, I don't have the right job, the right relationships, the right spouse, the right, the right opportunities. I, I've got this long list of things, God, and what are we doing about this? Like, if you would just, could you just bless one of these things, and if you would just answer one of these prayers, then I would step out and obey and worship the Lord. That's not what Abraham did, right? 
He had a genuine crisis. Like, this is, this is a terrible idea unless I believe that God is God and God is good and God's going to be good to me. And he stepped out in faith. He grabbed the fire and he grabbed the knife and he went up the mountain. Maybe, maybe is it holding you back that you've got an Isaac that you're holding on to? You've got something that you believe the Lord promised you. You've got something that you expect the Lord to come through on. You're holding too tightly to it. And, and God maybe is, is giving you a similar test. Like, will you loosen your grip on this Isaac? Instead of saying, God, it's got to happen and it's got to happen this way, can you just loosen that a little bit and step out in faith? Or is there an Isaac in your life that's already dead? Right? Remember Hebrews said that in a manner of speaking, Abraham did receive Isaac back from the dead. Because in, in Abraham's mind, like Isaac is already dead, he's, gotta, he's, he's fully confident. God's going to work out the math. I'm going to just obey. I'm going I'm to offer Isaac, and God can raise him from the dead. Are you, are you maybe even past the point of believing for God to raise something from the dead? Like you've got a dream that is long dead and under the ground and cold, and it even hurts to think about anymore. Go up the mountain. Grab your faith, grab your fire, and grab your knife in church. Go up the mountain because God is God and God is good and God's going to be good to you. And on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. I know it's scary. I know you have lack. I know you have concerns and fears. Do it anyway. Take courage. Be brave. Grab your faith and plant your feet firmly and grab your, grab your knife and grab your fire and go up the mountain because on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Amen? Okay, so we said because God is God and God is good and God is good to me, we will take up the shield. All right, so we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, but we've got to take it with us and we've got to take it up. We've got to practice saying God is God and God is good and God is good to me. And because of that, we're also going to practice the skill of stillness. We're going to grab our thoughts and evaluate, is this true or is it just a lie? <clears throat> and because God is God and God is good and God is good to me, we're also going to worship and obey. We're going to go up the mountain. We're going to trust that on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Amen? And then will you stand with me and let's pray. Father, I pray for my, my brothers and sisters here. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them. God, that you would strengthen them with courage. Lord, in the, in the face of lack, in the face of storms and trials that are raging against our lives right now, that you would, you would strengthen our faith that you are good, that you are who you say you are, that you're good, that you're God, and that you're going to be good to us. Lord, we say that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. My own eyes will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And we trust you that on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. We trust you to be good. We trust you to be God, and we trust you to be good to us. And we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. If you don't have a home church and you're looking for a Bible preaching community that has its heart set on passionately knowing Jesus and being his witness in our generation, check out Fierce.Church. We'd love for you to join us either digitally or in person. Also, if you're looking for leadership development related content, don't forget to check out the Fierce Leadership Podcast available wherever you get your podcast from. Special thanks to those of you who give generously to support this ministry. It's because of you that this is possible. You can click on the link in the description to give now or visit fierce.church for more
more information. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not subscribe, share it with your friends, click on the share button, take a screenshot, and share it on social media or wherever you would share such things. Whatever challenges you're facing, I know you can make it. Don't give up. Hang on to Jesus. He won't let go of you. Jesus loves you so much, and we love you. I hope someday we get to meet in person. Thanks again for listening.